say you went out and bought a portfolio of 500 units and you got 500 units in Atlanta. It's really hard to identify like what is happening at like one, two, three Main Street at any given time with like a high degree of confidence because you have like a lot of human intervention and you have like a lot of data fidelity problems. And so for us, the way that we think about the building the software in building kind of origin is our property management platform that we've created. Basically, it's how do we create automation and how do we create rules that allow for origin to effectively be the property manager brain? Because if you think about like going back to the model of the local property manager, that individual has 100 units, 150 units, they're driving around, they got their their notepad, and like the operating system is their brain. They know, hey, I've got four units in turn over here and Jim's turning them. I got those, I gotta get the, the sign in the yard over here. Like it's really hard to coordinate these things. And so when we thought about this from the beginning, we thought to go out and support 500,000 units, you really need to create a new way of thinking about automation yeah. and a new way of con uh, thinking about like data management. And so we unbundled the property manager. So we built a bunch of divisions that are all integrated in by origin. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Ford is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between 15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. All right. Ryan, yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here, Chris. I was a, I was a dope and Ryan, uh, has come up to Fort Worth twice because mm -hmm. the first time we got it wrong. And so this is commitment. So today we're going to deliver something for the people. Yeah, I like that. I, uh, <laughs> there's nowhere else I'd rather be. I love it, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming up. Yep. You're running a company called Darwin Homes, mm -hmm. a venture-backed property management company. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk a lot about that. But the interesting part of your story that maybe I'll kick it off with sure. starts at a company we all know called DoorDash. Yep. So let's set the stage for your career there, because okay. a lot of what you learned there are the seeds and the DNA that helped you think about how to run this business uh, in an old industry called property management. Great starting point. I also, um, as it turns out, I met my co-founder there okay. at, at DoorDash. So long story short, I was working in BC before moving to DoorDash. Okay. Uh, and we were looking at... Um, the kind of mobile distributed workforce space. This was like 2012, 2013. So we looked at, you know, uh, Uber. Um, we were looking at Lyft when it was called Zimride in LA. Um, and then I got introduced to Tony um, in the early days when he was out raising his first round of capital. And, uh, you know, he kind of sold me on this story. And, and this is like an interesting 
thread in my career is really around the story. Um, and Tony had the story. And so he, he saw this alternative use case for this distributed workforce, which is like delivery. Um, and at the end of the day, if you think about our thesis um, at the VC shop was really around logistics, right? You can get people to move things around a city um, and you can kind of distribute this variable workforce. Um, so Tony was really out there with this story around using it to deliver goods, right? And he had this idea that he could create kind of the last mile network for everything. Um, super ambitious. And they were working out of a two-bedroom home uh, with like four guys at the time. But if you, if you talk to Tony, you'd be like, oh, this is clearly going to be the next massive business. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know, uh, in my, all my wisdom, decided to move from LA up to Palo Alto with my wife or she was at my, my fiance at the time to, to join this business. And the first day, uh, you know, and, and the story, you know, with, with Tony was really, he had like the, the Stanford DNA. So he was at Stanford, uh, graduate school of business at the time had met two young, brilliant guys that could like build the machine. And then Tony could sell the machine. And he's also had another co-founder from GSB, Evan, uh, who's actually, uh, one of our first investors in Darwin now. So okay. small. Tony was actually our first money into Darwin. I love it. So um, anyways, uh, so my wife drops me off at a two-bedroom house. And my wife, by the way, she was working at like JPM. So yeah. she's like an asset management professional. Like, you know, my father-in-law, he's like a MD at a bank. Yeah. He's like, wait, what? You're, yeah. you're joining a food delivery business? <laughs> um, and so, but, uh, you know, I saw the opportunity and I believed in Tony ultimately. Yeah. And, and he sold the story. And I believe the story, the story made sense. And it was really around this vision. And then if you put the right people together with the right amount of capital, you could create the vision. Yeah. And I think that um, he was able to just like fight through and execute against a lot of you know different challenges, but you know he stuck to his vision. So, and real quick at that time, because we'll, let's talk about vision for sure. a second. Set the stage for like where we were in the world of apps. Like was Uber Super Eats early. out yet? No. Was there other food delivery apps this yet? Was 20, this was late. This was like December 2013, January 2014. Uber operated for context only in the Uber black car. And I think they were in like two cities. Okay. There was no Uber X. Okay. So DoorDash, that vision was like the original vision or mm. one of the original visions. Yep. And what today seems like there's a lot of delivery companies. Exactly. Okay. And so you can get, you know, people to do new forms of, of gigs or work. Um, they could download an app, they could get a job to go pick up a hamburger and deliver it across town. Got Started it. in Palo Alto. That's where we were. We we're originally the Palo Alto food delivery company. Okay. Before DoorDash. Um, that was the original name. It was okay. my offer letter was Palo Alto food delivery company. And you're like, we're kind of limiting our market size here yeah. by calling it the Palo Alto. Yeah. So my first job was to work with Tony <laughs> to sell restaurants. Okay. Uh, so, you know, going door to door, you know, trying to pitch restaurants. And so, and what uh, was the pitch at that point? Uh, we can increase your sales, um, you know, kind of like let's diversify your customer base, you know, all, you know, we can get you some off peak business, um, you know, basically anything to get them to sign up. Yeah. <laughs> um, honestly, cause a lot of guys are like, ah, oh, my food doesn't deliver well. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Like no one wanted to really think about food delivery as an option if you were really prideful about your food. Yeah. But the reality is, um, customers wanted it. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where we were playing on is like the consumer push was, was so immense. Um, so yeah, started selling restaurants there. Uh, quickly became in charge of like launching new cities. So we went to San Jose. So Palo Alto, San Jose, big launch uh, at the time. You know, it seemed like, how do you actually like scale this thing, right? You got to go get drivers down here. You got to get new restaurants. Um, and, you know, fast forward three, four years. Yeah, we expanded to like 250 cities. Um, 
and yeah, had like obviously an immense amount of success in a short period of time, not without a lot of challenges. Um, and during the course of that, I had different kind of roles in the business. Uh, so, you know, one was standing up all the local market operations in the launch. Yep. And so that was like really going market to market and expanding the business. And I think that's one of the parallels with Darwin is like, this is a national business that operates locally. Yep. Um, and so you need local drivers, you need local relationships with restaurants. Um, you just have to understand locally how these businesses operate because they were so different. Operating in Palo Alto versus Boston. I mean, they couldn't be different as a city on on basically all dimensions operationally. Okay. Did I cut you off? No, I was going to say the, the last piece is, yeah, I met my co-founder there. So I ran kind of the merchant business was uh, merchant products, uh, sales, business development. Um, and then he ran the consumer product uh, and consumer growth teams. Um, and so we worked super closely together, became very, very close friends. Um, and then one thing led to another. We decided to start a business together. Okay. I, we're we're going to move to the, the, the big part of the show, but this is a, this is a, a close second. This sure. is cool stuff. Um, did you have, I have a few questions. Did you have any experience in like scaling a company like this prior to going to DoorDash or no. are you learning this on the fly? On the fly. Okay. Yeah. There was no, there was no playbook for this kind of stuff. Right. And I think that was what was cool is if you could go motivate, bring together a really good group of people go, to go chase a vision together um, and you had a tailwind with you, I mean, you could go do this. And yeah. I think um, the business, you know, although in incredibly complex, we, we figured out a way to simplify it. So I think on the software side, it was incredibly difficult to think about how do you scale the infrastructure to support, I don't know, millions of deliveries a day, whatever they're doing today. But at the time, operationally, like we could simplify this down and we got it down to this launch playbook, like where, you know, give me four weeks and you could stand up Fort Worth. And so we, we understood exactly how to execute against building this business. And then it was like one market after another, a lot of ground and pound, a lot of, you know, recruiting of talent, um, lost sales. Okay, so that was my next question is, and you you answered a little bit, but you you made the comment, the next challenge was to figure out how to scale this. Yeah. Okay, how did you scale it? You you talked about the book, maybe just talk about like some high level lessons learned that said, okay, once we figured these things out, we knew we could go into any city and figure that city out and get in that city in four weeks. Yeah, I think um, it was, it was really about sequencing. So you had to figure out in any multi-sided business, you have to figure out like what's the challenging or kind of limiting factor in a multi-audience business. So okay. if you think about DoorDash, we serviced merchants, we had the consumer, and then you had the driver, right? And they all kind of had to work in unison in order to support the marketplace. Okay. Um, for us, we figured out a way to use the consumer to influence the merchant into signing up. Okay. And so if someone asked me today, like why is DoorDash DoorDash? Uh, it's two things. One is because of the the nature of our workforce, this mobile deliver like distributed group, uh, we figured out that we could just go take a menu, put it online, and then like drive volume to the restaurant. Because we would like literally call in orders, and the driver would show up in a DoorDash or pick the food up in the restaurant. It's like, what the hell is going on here? And, you know, I got you know PF Chang's like oh, I got eighty orders last night. What the hell's going on here? These guys in red shirts. But then your sales guy would come in on the back, say, hey, I just drove five grand of sales in the last five days. You guys want to think about delivery? Um, and that's how we actually like moved the needle. So we used consumer demand to influence the merchants to signing up. Um, and then once we had the merchant signed up, we really, in about 2016, so about three, two and a half, three years into the business, we became a merchant services business. 
which is like we're building merchant products. We're doing a lot of account management because we knew that the restaurant was really what was driving the flywheel right. uh, in the early days. But yeah, I mean, the the number one hack that we figured out was we would take menus, we would put them online. We got a lot of- Put them on like the DoorDash website? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we had, uh, we had, I mean- it, it, some so of the me story. as a customer, you're you new know, to a yeah. city. I'm going. I'm like, oh, they've got PF Chang's on DoorDash. I mean, you would Not get a, technically, you, but technically, you would get a mailer in the mail <laughs> that says Cheesecake Factory now delivers, and then you'd go download the app, and you'd be like, wow, Cheesecake Factory delivers. You know, like we had these like mega merchants. We called them uh, what do we call them? Hero Hero merchants. Yeah, and they would just drive your flywheel because you'd get all this consumer demand really quickly, and so the consumer demand would influence the merchant. But also then you'd cross-sell the consumer. So Zach, my co-founder now at Darwin, he was the head of growth. So he was part of the architecture of doing all this. Um, but he also had had these like unique insights where he could, once we got the merchant signed up, we could use their SEO juice to actually push volume back uh, to DoorDash. I mean, it was a very con- it was a it was a very elegant way to, to go is, to the business. Is it legal to to send out a flyer that says Cheesecake Factory is now delivering? I mean, it was a gray area. Yeah, it was a gray area. And so I think what you see is like in a lot of these businesses, like at the time, there was more exposure on the driver's side, right? Are these right. are these like employees? Are they contractors? Is this gray area? No one really knew. Um, and I think what happens is when you see real innovation quickly. Uh, the law doesn't, it, it trails, right? Yeah. And so for us, you just pushed it. And, and we used to, later. yeah, apologize later. And I think for us, I used to joke that like Travis at Uber, Ryan Graves was one of our first investors, the first CEO at Uber. He, he's on the deal with us at Darwin now, but they used to be the chairman of the board in like a joking way. Cause like Uber was so far out that no one was going to put this back in the bottle. Right. Because you couldn't take these jobs away from the millions of people that are driving people around the city. Uh-huh. And so we knew where Uber went, DoorDash went. And Uber got too big to fail. And too many people were relying on this for income. And so we, you know, we just pushed the limits. And then eventually we signed up all the merchants. And I think in the four or five years, we probably signed up like 90,000 merchants. Um, and then we expanded the platform into, uh, you know, some really interesting things around Walmart delivery. Uh, you know, Whole Foods delivery. And that's really where DoorDash has now become, in my opinion, like category defining. And I think that Tony, his ambition is he's going after Amazon. So he's going to be the real time Amazon and he's going to have it like the local infrastructure built and he's leveraging all these like distributed stores. Um, and yeah, I think he's going to take a run at a huge vision, which is this real time get anything now uh, in your city. Um, and so, yeah, so, but yeah, it, it was, uh, looking back, it was like a crazy story. Um, fun ride, learned a lot, built a lot of great relationships, wouldn't trade it for the world. And then, yeah, my co-founder and I became best friends and, um, decided we want to start a business together. All right. I have one more question. Sure. Fire away. We're going to go. I think when we talked like maybe the first or second time, and I think you've kind of answered it, but let's like wrap it up into something that's a little more digestible. Sure. You just kind of said like DoorDash did it. They were profitable. Like all these other food delivery apps and things, they just weren't the real deal. Like they just never could make it. And you're like, DoorDash did it. Mm-hmm. What did they do that just totally, they were playing chess while the competition was playing checkers? Like what did you figure out? Aside from being able to sign up people and do all that, how did you do it profitably when so many people couldn't? I mean, that's a great question. I think that, Darwin, or sorry, DoorDash, they were relentless in their execution. Yeah. And I think that ultimately, at the end of the day, if you look at businesses that are successful, they have great people. Yeah. I think I think DoorDash has one of the best management and 
leadership teams in the game. Yeah. And I think they were relentless in their pursuit to to kind of crack the code. Yeah. And I think that's part software. Um, it's part kind of uh, growth uh, in the way that they were able to acquire customers and the way they're just ex- able to continue to extract value from partnerships. Yeah. Um, and because ultimately this is a scale play and yeah. they were able to kind of get to scale. And I think a lot of this too is luck, right? I think my mentor taught me a long time ago, you'd rather be lucky than good. Yeah. And I think DoorDash's timing was perfect. Um, and I don't think that in an environment like today, if you were trying to start DoorDash, it'd be a very, very different scenario. Yeah. And we're going to get to today, but we're sure. going to do to today later. All right. So you meet uh, who's become one of your best friends, if not your best friend. Zach. Yeah. Zach. He's the brains of the operation. He's the brains. And yeah. They just, Ask anyone. They Ask still let you show up. Yeah. I, yeah. That's what, I'm just here to, <laughs> to support Zach. <laughs> Zach, if you're listening to this, we love you. Uh, I don't even know you yet, but we love you. Yeah. So does Johnny. He also, like for context about Zach, he was the head of growth at Facebook as well. So, and now he's in property management. So, okay. He's, he's, uh, he's a very interesting dude. So we have Facebook, we have DoorDash, and then two guys that are on this hyper growth, hyper scale world that y'all live in. You decide to get into one of the most archaic industries mm-hmm. in the world. Yep. That has not had any. The words uh, scale and hyper growth do not come to mind when I they think don't. about property management. It's not built for scale. This business, <laughs> like the industry. And you said that's what we're going to go after. So let's just start with what was like the initial thesis. I know that's evolved. You've learned a lot, and we're going to talk learned, about that. I've learned a little. Uh, you've learned a little. What um, what was the original thought? Yeah. So I think Zach and I were exploring opportunities for about six months, okay. what we wanted to do next. And I think for us, um, for me, again, it comes back to the story yeah. and kind of looking out into looking out under the horizon saying like, hey, what are big opportunities? How, how Let's create frameworks for analyzing the opportunities. And then what are, what's a vision that we find compelling that we think we could go put together? Um, the framework was important as a starting point. It was really about fragmented businesses um, that didn't kind of have like a integrated or simplified value product. Um, and then I think the last piece is just like this general, like NPS, like low NPS. Like if you look at businesses that are kind of defined by those elements, I think they're ripe for someone to go take them on. Okay. And I think if you look at delivery, taxi, like there's, there's a lot of these, these tech and ops businesses that kind of fit those, those criteria. Um, for us, you know, we landed into real estate broadly. And I think it was, again, is multi-sided in, in kind of our thinking. Um, one was like, we really understood that single family rentals were about to explode. I think you have generationally more people that are moving from multifamily. They're, you're entering into different life stages. They want a backyard. They want to have kids, but they're not going to buy homes. A lot of these people are not going to buy homes. We live in I don't want to say that there's like this debate of like rent versus own, all that other stuff. The reality is a lot of people can't afford to buy a home. Yeah. Uh, In today's society, it's gotten even worse recently. Um, And so for us, we wanted to actually find a way to elevate the renter experience. And in single family rental, it's historically dominated by the local property manager. He's got 150 units under management. He has no technology. He's not incented to deliver any kind of service for the resident. He works for the owner. It's a challenging situation. That was one side of it. The other side of it uh, was investing in real estate. So single family rentals are they're a great trade. I think a lot of people have done really, really well. I think it's a great way if you have long-term kind of views 
um, to kind of put money to work. Um, and I think that has now expanded into this idea of like remote investing. So we were living in the Bay Area and, uh, you know, SFR doesn't really exist in, in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, but you look out in like, you know, at the time, Dallas, Atlanta, Orlando, like there's a lot of good investment opportunities uh, that we were actually looking at as individuals, right? And so, gosh, this this thing really could make sense here. There's a really unique opportunity to connect this kind of marketplace opportunity. Um, and so we came back to this solving for uh, one side of the market first. Now, the difference between SFR, and we consider ourselves an SFR platform today, right? Um, property management is a, a really like key piece of that uh, calculus. Um, but so for us, our, our, our vision and our, our goal was to make it simple to invest in single family rentals. Mm -hmm. And you know our, oppor our, our opportunity or our mission as we think about it is really to create opportunities in every home. Um, and so, you know, when Zach and I kind of did the homework, we said, yeah, if you could actually create the property management infrastructure, you could create a really big machine to go end to end to allow you to buy homes kind of anywhere you want with confidence. Yeah. Um, and in doing that, we were now going to be able to have these like really interesting resident monetization, uh, experiences. Um, and I think that is like just the new age of where it's all going. Um, and I can touch on that in a bit. Yeah. So anyways, we went out, put together a deck. Started, you know, calling around, raised our first round of capital, knew nothing about property management at the time. And that was a blessing. If we would have known anything about property management. I mean, we would go talk to property management. Oh, you guys are nuts. Why would you <laughs> want to do this? Never going to work. And But I mean, that's all the same stuff that everybody hears, right? right? And But candidly, like if we knew anything about property management, we probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, so we didn't really know. And it was like very resident centric. The, the first deck that I was fundraising with is like, you know, the, the world's first resident centric property management company, right? <laughs> and so our go-to-market strategy was originally around retail because we had to go build the machine. We called Christian. Christian was with us at DoorDash. At, he was at Square at the time. He said, hey, we're going to go out and build this, you know, operating system for SFR. He's like, great. All right. And he's genius. Like he built a lot of the merchant products with us, worked with Zach on the growth side. He's a tech guy. Like he's, a, our, he's our CTO. Okay. He's like the, the architect. Okay. So he's like, all right, you know, let's do it. And so we, we <laughs> got Christian on board, got a couple, you know, DoorDash, you know, the DoorDash mafia on board, um, went out and raised our first, you know, in the first, like, I don't know, six, seven months, we raised about seven and a half million to just really go get an MVP out the door. And I, and I think it's, it's widely misunderstood how complicated it is to build property management software just due to the surface area. It's like immense. Um, so we had to go out and start building our software and we had no units. So at the time, like Zach and I, we like go raise money. We're living in the Bay area and you know, I'll never forget. We started traveling to Austin. And so we we're headquartered in Austin. Now, uh, we look really smart. This was like, you know, late 2018. Let's go. Baby. Um, yeah. So I'm not joking. We're, 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 you know, we're going around, we're telling our story all over, you know, Silicon Valley, talking to our VC network <laughs> and they're like, great. So like, where are you gonna launch this business? And we had this, like, we had this slide. It was like all the cities. It was like Phoenix, Orlando, Dallas. And then we were like, ah, oh, I think that, you know, Austin is a place where the SFR trade makes sense, number one. But we could also build a strong engineering culture. And it was very unique. And so we really had this insight early that ops needed to sit with product. That was like very, very critical to our success. Yep. Because those two worlds are so different. They needed to be kind of co-located and working together. Yep very, very closely from the, the the early onset. So we could learn the business. So Zach could learn the business. So Christian could learn the business and we could build the right things. Yep. Um, so we, you know, went out and said, all right, so we raised our money and then we had to go at, Hey, 
tell, tell my wife, hey, honey, we're headed to Austin. I'm bringing you to Austin now. You always wanted to be married to a property manager, yeah. so <laughs> you got your wish. Here we go. Um, and so, yeah, we, we headed to Austin, launched the business. We're sitting in a WeWork, got no units, right? So how do you get the first unit? So you start running some SEM. I'm the sales guy. You know, this is like, a you know, we're coming from DoorDash now. I'm in a WeWork selling a guy on why I should sign up for property management. We ended up started, you know, chipping away, get five houses, 10 houses, started working our way up the ladder. Um, I don't know, got a couple hundred houses, maybe 100, 200 houses the first year, whatever the number was. Um, but it was really just how we could like test the software and really build the architecture. Uh, did that for a couple of years, you know, focused on retail. Um, we had this idea around the institutional play. Retail being the one-off investor that owns a couple. Yeah, of the yeah. guys, the guys and gals that have one, two houses, three houses, four houses. I think our biggest owner had five houses, or yeah. something like that. It's yeah. and and so that's a, just a, that's a tough business. Um, but you know, we we kind of block, block did some blocking and tackling, yeah. fought through the early days, got some turns under our belt, got some leasing under our belt. You know, yeah. Um, it was we we had a, we actually hired a local property manager. I actually think he's the best pro local property manager in, in Texas. He's like world class. His name Tim Hendricks. Tim, if you're listening to this, shout out. Um, you sh people should sign up with Tim. Um, so we hired him, and we're like, all right, you're a local property manager. You can think generally about product. Like, you know, how do we build this thing? How do we build the machine? Because you needed that input. You needed to know how the industry worked in order to influence what yeah. we were building. Um, so yeah, I think you know, I would say 24 months in. My phone started ringing from institutional funds. And if you think about what we built, and I'll get into the product stuff later and all that other stuff, but just on a high level go to market, we built a machine for scale and we were operating in multiple cities. And so if you think about what we had kind of created, we had a lot of product market fit with the institutional fund that wants to deploy capital in multiple cities quickly, wants access to data, and they want access to really like strong operators. Um, and so, yeah, my phone started to ring and we started to take a step back and say, yeah, like this institutional trade is real. Uh, maybe we should focus on this. And then, I mean, immediately, uh, our institutional business took off and we're, you know, almost entirely institutional today. So, but I, but I think if I had to summarize that, that's like a, a point in time for our business where like, well, eventually we'll circle back to retail, but we're just drafting off the tailwind. And so... You know, I think if you have a vision, you have to be flexible in terms of how you get there yeah. because like things change. And for us, the institutional wave is just allowing us to get to scale. And this is a scale play similar to, to uh, delivery, right? Yeah. You have to be at scale. The institutional funds that are buying three, 500 homes a month, is the fastest way to get to scale in why, a lot of these local markets. Why do you have to be to scale? Uh, is, what, what, what does scale give, give Darwin that the local property manager will never have? So I think number one, you need local scale and density to operate efficiently. Correct and profitably. Yeah, exactly. So if I'm at, if I have like a hundred homes in Dallas, they're like all over Dallas, like you're never going to be able to operate those effectively. Yep. I think that's number one. So it, it's kind of a sequencing thing here. So you got to get some density. And then I think the secondary piece is you got to get data Yeah. Um, because this becomes a, like ultimately when we think about what property management is and what we've built. If you think about it at the highest level, this is a data problem. If so, Darwin today, I think we're just under six thousand units. We doubled in the last five months. Like, awesome. I mean, it's we're accelerating aggressively. Probably close the year at ten thousand units. Um, you know, and so for us, we built a machine to just really kind of like put units to work. Um, but it's a data problem.
So if I have 6,000 houses, say you went out and bought a portfolio of 500 units and you got 500 units in Atlanta, it's really hard to identify like what is happening at like one, two, three Main Street at any given time with like a high degree of confidence because you have like a lot of human intervention and you have like a lot of data fidelity problems. And so for us, the way that we think about the building the software in building kind of origin is our property management platform that we've created. Um, basically, it's how do we create automation and how do we create rules that allow for origin to effectively be the property manager brain? Because if you think about like going back to the model of the local property manager, that individual has 100 units, 150 units, they're driving around, they got their, their notepad, and like the operating system is their brain. They know, hey, I've got four units in turn over here and Jim's turning them. I got those. I got to get the, the sign in the yard over here. Like it's really hard to coordinate these things. And so when we thought about this from the beginning, we thought to go out and support 500,000 units. You really need to create a new way of thinking about automation yeah. and a new way of uh, thinking about like data management. And so we unbundled the property manager. So we built a bunch of divisions that are all integrated in by origin. And so it's really kind of this concept of like a compound business um, where we have a leasing business, a maintenance business, a turn business. And we have like we've built accounting software you, and you have to integrate all of these different things. But it's all interconnected on our uh, proprietary task management. Because at the end of the day, property management is really tasks at scale. Right. It's like there are an immense amount of tasks that have to get orchestrated. And some of them have to operate uh, like sequentially, and some of them can operate in a, in a parallel way. Yeah. But like human beings can't like do this. And so what you've seen is property management companies have tried to scale. They're only as good as the property manager they have locally. And that person hits limits, goes on vacation, whatever it is, leaves. Yep. And these management companies get you know held hostage, right? But so what you want to do is you want to build software, centralize as much of the operation as possible, and then your boots on the ground they're swinging hammers. They're headed to the house for escalation management. But like all the thinking, all the judgment, um, all the like tactical execution, that stuff happens centrally. Like yeah. you don't need to lease a home in Orlando. You don't need to be in Orlando to lease a home. I mean, I think last month we did 200 leases. Uh, we don't have we don't have any leasing agents that are exist in a market, and we're beating the market in terms of like performance. Um, so I think we just took and again, this comes back to not knowing that much. We took a point of view and we executed on this, and I think we had some some ideas of the constraints of the business um, and, and understanding that like, if this really is gonna work at scale, if we're building the machine for 500,000 units, you gotta limit uh, the human judgment in this business because it just, there's, that's just the nature of the game. So, uh, yeah. but it, you know, I, I mean, listen, it's, it's been a, an immense lift to get us here yep. because of the surface area of property management. Yes, yeah, so you see, you've said surface area twice. What does that mean? So if you think the about the of things a property management does, yeah, it's a horizontal business in itself. So um, for us, if you think about it again, everything comes. Take a step back. We want to simplify investing in SFR. I want to go buy a home in Orlando. You know, you got a lot of. You have to do a lot of things to make that happen, right? But at the end of the day, everything you know starts and stops with the custody of the asset and the management. Our underwriting is only as good as kind of the management of the asset. Um, so again, starting point was management. So if you think about management, you unpack it. We've got a lease. We have to do collections. We have resident services and support. I mean, for context, I think we got 15,000 phone calls last month. So just think about the scale of, of kind of operating that, right? In isolation, uh, we've got a repairs and maintenance business. We've got a turn business. 
We have a construction business. Uh, and then we had to build account. And so we had to build software for all those distinct pieces. And then it's all built on an accounting system. So we had to build our own, uh, you know, accounting software. Yeah. And so that that really gave us a run for our money. Yeah. Um, but that's where you you we bring in experts, right? So we hire we and that and a, across our business, what Zach and I knew from the beginning was like, let's just go out and hire the best people in the industry. And again, it comes down to the story. I knew if I can sell the story and I believe in this vision, I'll get other people to go believe in it with me. Yeah. And I think that that's investors, uh, but it's also kind of the people that have to go build the machine, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean today. We have acquisitions. So we have an acquisitions platform. We have a construction platform and we have the management business. And again, it's again, it's it's end-to-end simplified um kind of SFR solution. All right. I've got a lot. Um, one mm. more thing before we dive into the divisions, which is kind of next. But you said something at the beginning, and it's kind of a thread that kind of goes throughout what you just said, but you said engineering culture. Yeah. I'm not a tech guy. What what does a great engineering culture actually look like? Like, what what do you mean when you say we needed a great engineering culture? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a group of people. So f- first and foremost, when you think about building really great businesses, the technical challenges are immense. So, it, and again, it comes back to this is a scale enablement opportunity. Yep. Um, and so, if you think about from a, you have to go back to like first principles. How should this operate? Okay, this is how we think about the world. This is how we think about the business working. How do we go take a, a, a point of view with a big vision and build this product that can support this vision? And so I think without world-class engineers, you're never gonna get close to building this thing out. Yeah. Um, and so I think our like, you know, we had Christian come on board, right? So DoorDash Square, like exceptional person. Our first engineer is from MIT. And so like the the industry, Invitation Homes uh, isn't bringing in that talent to go kind of tackle these problems and kind of rethink how do you how do we build this, you know, V2 of, of management software. Right. Um, so when I think about engineering culture, it's really about a group of people that's motivated to question everything, um, develop frameworks for developing new solutions to longstanding, very, very challenging problems. Yeah. Um, and I think that's it at its core. It's like, there's a lot of problems. Our operators can come all day long with a new problem, but the engineers and the product managers are responsible for basically architecting new solutions that our operators would never even think about. Right, 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 right. They're, they're coming in saying, here's a problem and it's on the engineering team and the product team to go and here's a solution. 100%, all we want out of our operators, so you go get the best operators in the world, right? And so I believe that we've done that. And they come back and say, here's my problem statement. That's what we asked them. Because like when they get into solutioning, they're just going to tell you what, you know, the industry does, right? That's just how it is. And so our job as leaders is really bridging that gap. You know, how does the, the tech side of the house work with the, the, the operations and the property management and the construction side of the house? Those are two worlds that are very, very different. And so we needed leaders that can understand what product can do um, and then communicate with this like engineering group. And a lot of that is through, you know, really, really talented product management. The product managers are the groups that have to sit in between the two worlds and then be able to kind of translate and, and understand the problems of the operations and then translate them into solutions that engineers can go build. And the operator being the boots on the ground, the construction guy, the, the yeah. leasing agent, yeah. the maintenance tech, that's the operator. They're going to the product manager going, 
this is an issue that we always have. Mm -hmm. That product manager is synthesizing what that means and then is communicating it to the tech team that's going, all right, we're going to figure out how to build this something that can solve that. 100% at scale. And, and in, in the eng team and the product team and the leadership team, we push them to think 10x about everything. I don't want you to build something for four months from today. Right. Right. Because then we're just going to have to rebuild it. And you create a lot of technical debt. So this is really about the engineering team thinking about, all right, and, and product management. Hey, does this 10x? Yeah. We're 6,000 homes, we're 60,000 homes. Like, is this going to work at 60,000 homes? No. All right, then let's let's go back to the, the drawing board. And when you're in the early stages of this, and I know we're kind of having a just a build a company conversation sure. for a second, but okay, here's my problem, product manager. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming the solution, the, the engineers come up with maybe like three ideas for how to, like, how does the best idea win? And early on, are you maybe testing different solutions to different people? They don't know that's happening. Like how, when you, cause when you decide to go all in on the 10 X, like this yeah. is the solution. Yep. I'm assuming you've said no to a couple other possible solutions. hundred percent. I think so saying no is, is, is like more than half the battle. How do you test? Like, how do you do all that? Well, I think it's a partnership, right? And I think it starts with having the best operators that can understand the real problem. I think one of the biggest challenges in property management and in real estate broadly um, at least in our experience, is getting to the root problem. There's a lot of symptoms out there, right? And so, and, and you'll hear a lot of <laughs> property management and real estate, it's an anecdote-driven business because there's not a lot of data, right? And so yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges is getting leadership that can understand how to create a problem statement and understand like, what is the root problem? Why are we doing this? What, what is causing this? Getting, digging deep, 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 deep. And then the product management team can work together in a partnership partnership really solve those kind of root challenges yeah. so i think it's like getting to the actual problem yeah that's one thing that makes real estate so great is there isn't a lot of data no you can hide yeah you can hide you actually don't have to be a genius to really do well in this industry property management's been doing it for you know the for and long. i love property management great people but you know th is. there's never been a lot of data in the business no and it's all anecdotes and it's a lot of offline stuff right and i think that that's part of the challenge in the business but it's part of the opportunity as well it is and the problem is um if you're only going to run a hundred units in a city, there's just not a lot of money there to 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 pay for a lot of innovation or thinking deeply. I mean, you can't. You can't. I mean, I mean if we're being honest, like SFR has never really had a lot of talent. It's the last house on the block for a lot of people. Right. No one woke up and was like, "I really want to be an SFR property manager." Yep. That's the reality of the business, and so there's not a lot of talent. Yep. And so. There, I think now that's starting to change as this institutionalizes. You have more people moving from multi. Um, you have more, you know, kind of folks that have been, you know, experienced more on the finance side that are stepping in. But operationally, when you think about real expertise, a lot of this is just shots on goal in this business. They've yep. seen a lot. You know, you, you've seen a lot in Atlanta. You kind of been around the business a while, so you need to extract that value um, and then productize it, be able to scale it. Okay. So we're going to go from that to we created all these divisions and mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the divisions. Sure. And then I want to talk about this SFR explosion and institutional mm -hmm. capital coming into it in a big way and how that changed your business. Mm -hmm. um, all right. We got accounting, which for anybody that has never been in property management, it's like all accounting at the end of the day. It Everything is. rolls Where's the money? It's where's the money. Yep. And the owner wants to see it and the, the property manager wants to know where it's going. Mm -hmm. But you have, well, let's, let's kind of relating it to the DoorDash conversation. You're arriving in Orlando. Mm -hmm. 
you need to deploy your construction business, mm -hmm. turn business, maintenance business, you know, leasing business, yep. all that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So let's just talk about when you arrive in Orlando, what, what's happening. And then I want to talk about like this tech that you've built, what these new, these people that are boots on the ground are interfacing with to make their jobs better. Good question. So day zero in, Orla in Orlando, typically what happens is we've adopted now what we call kind of um, in the near term, it's a client-led model. So an institutional fund calls us, hey, I'm going to go buy 250 homes in the next 90 days in Orlando. Okay. You already answered one question I Great. have for later on. But okay. we'll talk about that later. You're, so, you're chasing, you're letting the client take you to places. Uh, in, in many ways, yes. We've okay. launched, we've intentionally launched markets, but I, I think the go-to-market, this is a tops-down go-to-market. Yeah. Um, and it has to be, yep. um, and it's just like a much more cost-effective way to build this business. Okay. Um, so client calls, Hey, I'm going to go buy 250 units in Orlando. You guys got 60 days. Great. We stand up, we get an area manager. That person's kind of a Swiss army knife, uh, but their asset, we call them asset specific, meaning they don't really need to know anything about leasing. They don't need to know anything about like, you know, resident support. They really need to know, Hey, can I inspect a home? Can I deliver a lockbox? Can I do notice task management? It's tasks, right? Local tasks. Um, so for those individuals, uh, they have an app. And basically, they wake up every morning and the tasks come from origin. A lot of this stuff is workflow automation. So something happens uh, during the life cycle uh, of a home, which basically kicks off automated workflows. Again, it's about limiting judgment. So we know with confidence, hey, there's a move out happening. These 20 steps need to happen to get another resident in the home. And how are we orchestrating that across all these different teams? Origin is dictating the tasks. So the task, uh, the local task, perform the inspection. That happens to appear on the technician's app. That person goes to the home, performs the inspection, it's uploaded back to origin, verified, uh, kicked off to a vendor to, to perform the work. Um, and so the local individuals, um, this is where there's a lot of, uh, kind of similarities with DoorDash, where it's really about empowering these individuals to perform their tasks. Well, simplify, simplify their lives, set their expectations. You, you log into your app, you do your tasks, uh, you know, go home and that that's your day. And, and I think that, uh, we can rate all the different activities that they're doing, but again, we're limiting the judgment. And I, I think that's, that's helpful for our investors. I think it's helpful for the scalability of our business. Uh, one of the, you, you got lots of vendors, you got, you need people that mow lawns, that fix mm -hmm. light bulbs, yep. that, you know, uh, fix air conditioners, mm -hmm. fix plumbing leaks. Mm -hmm. How do you get, how do you source vendors in a market? Vendors are the lifeblood of the business. That's it is the business. Yeah. It is it's the business. Can you get the HVAC fixed? That is accounting. In it's accounting and vendor <laughs> management. So vendor management team. That's a sales team, right? Yeah. But we built tools for vendors. Okay. So if you think about an ecosystem of audience-based apps, yeah. Okay. We have a vendor, third-party vendor portal. They log into Darwin. They get their jobs. We help them with like quarterly business reviews. How's your business actually performing? We can help them with that, right? We can pay them quickly. We have a working capital loan from SVB. I can pay a vendor in seven days. Normal company might take 30. We yeah. can turn your capital over faster. So um, we go and we sell the vendors, right? I mean, that's yeah. a sale. Um, and, and so we're working with vendors. Uh, it, it's, you know, it, 
it presents challenges, right? Yeah. I think you're you're kind of constantly this is evaluating. Like, this is where you separate yourself from the pack. That's right. And so, and then it then it becomes around like, what do you internalize? What do you third party? I think that's always going to be a constant dance in, in the space. Um, but yeah, the vendors are the lifeblood of the business. They're local, and you need them. If you think about just the Orlando example, like I don't know, Orlando's giant, right? It's not as big as Dallas, but still a mega city. And so you need vendors in all these distinct kind of sub markets. We need to service them. So yeah, we built vendor tools, uh, vendor uh, apps that they can work with. Uh, again, it's all about simplifying their jobs, set the expectations, allow them to do their job well. Uh, we verify the job and then we pay quickly. So I'm like ABC Lawn Company. I've been in Orlando for 10 years. Didn't know you guys were coming. I get a call from a vendor mm -hmm. at, or I get a call from a sales rep at Darwin. Yep. And he's like, hey, uh, we're about to start managing 500 homes we need a lawn care company that can mow weekly. Mm -hmm. Do you think you might be a fit? We've, we've done some research. Yep. You seem like a great company. Yeah. Here's what we have to offer you in return. One, you know, 500 homes to mow, the slick app that you can do all your work in. Like that is kind of how you are on. That's the pitch. Yeah. yeah. And I think so we have to go through the verification process, the insurance process, all those things. But at the end of the day, what matters? We have recurring work. Okay. And so I think that vendors today, they can fill in their schedule with their retail work here and there. And, you know, maybe it's a little higher margin on their retail job, their mowing your house, whatever. Uh, but for us, it's consistent. And so they can fill in their crews or their individuals like with, with like recurring work. Yep. And I think that's another reason scale matters. You actually can start to influence the vendor side of the business. If you have, you know, in Atlanta, we got, I don't know, 1100 homes or something like that. And uh, in Atlanta, we can call a vendor. Um, we say, I got 1100 homes and we're going to be doing... I don't know, 70 turns this month. Like that's real money for those those groups. And yeah. so they want that money and they want the consistency of it. And so they're, they're, our goal is to go deep with certain partners. Yep. Um, and then we can kind of develop those relationships. You get into a working rhythm. I think all that stuff really becomes very beneficial. And it's also very defensible over time. Because whether anybody wants to admit it or not, if that lawn company is doing a good job, they're a, they are a extension of Darwin Homes. 100%. The performance of that lawn care business is your reputation. That's right. You're the general contractor. That's exactly right. And yeah. so on the on the occupied maintenance or occupied services, the resident is rating the vendors. Yeah. And so we're sharing those ratings with our investors. We're sharing the ratings with the vendors. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean. There's, there's challenges with that, but the rating mechanism is what allows for you to kind of create that really tight feedback loop. Yeah. Um, and I think generally speaking, 95% of the vendors we work with, they're, they're small business owners. They want to do a good job. They have pride of work. They want to know what the hell's going on with their business. Right. And so those rating mechanisms are actually really, really valuable to them as well. And so, okay. So you've gone in, you probably have a list of like, we need plumbers, we need electricians. 100%. That's yeah. part of the playbook, right? That's hey, we're playbook. going to Orlando. Yeah. We've got a launch ops team. They know they're yeah. the forward deploy the team. They know, Hey, we got to get this many, you know, vendors by trade effectively, yeah. um, onboard them, you know, manage those relationships. Okay. And then you spin up the market, get it rolling. I love it. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. Depending on how fast you read, you can look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal, and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes 
assuming you've already understood what the deal is, like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes and it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it. We have investors that are in 15 different deals. They can go into their portal online, go to their profile and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent. Every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjuniperSquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. Well, you said you're 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 at this point, if, if the institutions are going into a city, there's a good opportunity you're gonna follow them in there. Yeah. Is the question what makes a good city for Darwin a relevant question right now? Is the answer any it, city that an institution's willing to go into, or is it? I more think than it's that? about so obviously there's your core SFR business markets, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, we're in Phoenix, we're in Orlando, we're in Dallas, yeah. we're in Atlanta, we're in Tulsa. Like yeah. there's there's core SFR markets you gotta be in. Yeah. And I think um We'll get on why that's important in a second. But yeah, I think that there are certain markets where institutions have taken us and we've said, I don't know if I would go there otherwise, yeah. but they'll pay us to go. Right. And so if, you, if you're paying for me in that market, as long as that market's contribution margin positive, I'll plant my flag. I'll manage my 400 units and it may not grow uh, in the near term, but uh, it just allows for us to kind of plant our flag in more places because yep. you never really know where the puck is going. And I think that's something we've seen. We have in, like large institutional partners that were, you know, January, February deploying aggressively into Atlanta and, you know, Phoenix. Now, all of a sudden they're deploying into Indy and I don't know, uh, Tulsa. And so you kind of want to have this diversity to allow for these investors to capture yield wherever it exists. And just so people get a picture of what we're talking about here when whatever institution goes to Orlando and buys 250 units, we're not talking about 250 units kind of scattered around Orlando. We're talking about a new development of 250 no, it's, homes. No, it's, it's, it's typically one-off. Okay, so it's one, okay. It is one-off, yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, no, we, 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 we are actively launching our build-to-rent product. Okay, so let's. So it's a good point to just make clear on the episode. Scattered site. SFR, what we're talking about is kind of scattered build to rent is communities of homes. It's like a gated community. It's all for rent and you can do both. Yeah. Obviously I mean, the build to rent. Oh, it's easy. That, that's going to be yeah. like your dream. Exactly. I think, you know, one of our philosophies is always like, you know, solve the hardest problems first. Yeah. If I can, if I can manage a thousand units in Orlando that are non-standard and distributed, like the build to rent stuff, you know, Lennar's 200 unit community down the streets, pretty easy. So we talked about you, you, you mentioned one division acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not, you don't hear that at property management firms very often. No. Actually, I've never heard it. Yeah. So again, comes back to what are we, what problem are we solving? So in theory, I'm, I'm, you know, some guy that wants to buy houses in Orlando. Yeah. I can now go on maybe Darwin in the future. Mm -hmm. Y'all are going to help me select the property to buy and then just seamlessly manage it right after. Correct. And I'm imagining down the road, probably help me finance it too. 100%. So the world, the world <laughs> is this. You will go to Darwin in five years. You will see a bunch of opportunities to buy homes, right? And as an individual, you could buy one, you could buy 10, you could buy a thousand, right? Um, but we are going to be the trust layer that exists in all these markets. And we're just going to help people understand exactly what they're going to buy. And then if you want to buy a fifth of a home, we can fractionalize it. That's how we can really create liquidity, create a new level of engagement within the space. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, before yesterday, 
I used to say we're building effectively the Coinbase of of real estate. What happened to Coinbase? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I down. I haven't I haven't tracked the news. Okay. Are you joking? I literally did not. They laid off the like twenty percent of their staff. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Coinbase is getting hammered. Sorry, I, I've I've had my buddy Moses <laughs> Kagan in town. He oh, totally yeah, yeah. stole my attention. Okay. Um, what's up, Moses? If you look back to crypto 2014, 2015, yeah. you had to do a lot of work to participate. You had to create a node. You had to like know you had to like you had to really be in in crypto. I think you still have to do that in 2020. Sure. But it's a lot easier. Yeah, like I, my kidding. sister could like download Coinbase and buy Bitcoin if yeah. she really wanted to. And she wouldn't have to do much work. Yeah. But back then you actually had to do work. Today, yeah. if you want to participate in SFR and you want to do it in a geographically unconstrained way, you have to really do a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. If you and I want to go buy Charlotte right now, great market. Yeah. Um, I've got to get a broker. I've got to get a contractor because every home needs to be repositioned. Yeah. I've got to get a management company. So we're going to go end to end. And so five years from today, there will be a marketplace that sits on top of our infrastructure. And so we have to build all the piping. And, and that is kind of what we're heading out to do. And so, again, that's why the institutional play makes so much sense in this top-down strategy, because I get to scale. I have scale in all these cities, so you can just layer your one home on my 5,000 in Orlando. You're going undercover as a property manager. 100%. Like, we, we had no intention of becoming just a property management company. It was much more solve the hardest problem. Where, where, is, where can you deploy? V we were at a moment in time where like we could go out and tell a story, raise a lot of money and go build infrastructure in this like compound business to change the way that an industry works. And so we're going to increase engagement and participation where you're going to be sitting in Fort Worth buying homes in Indianapolis and you're never going to go to Indianapolis and they're just going to exist on some portfolio. Yep. Um, and it's going to be done through this national trust network. Um, and I think that that's where, you know, SFR and real estate broadly just changes completely because it's, it's something that's still approachable for a lot of people. And it's still, it's a fantastic asset. It just, it's not been easy to participate in. So yeah, we offer acquisitions, uh, renovations, and then the management piece. But we solve for management first, understanding that our Excel model doesn't matter if you can't manage the asset and manage a turn. And so the guy who does our acquisitions, he wanted to get serious. Uh, he was the head of SFR for Sternlich at Starwood. How oh, really? Yeah. So he's bought 10,000 houses in his career. And and his job is not to go buy onesie twosies. His job is to find the hundred homes he can take down at a time. I mean, he well, we built we built an acquisitions platform, so we have like a like a proprietary feed of houses that we could pull up and look at Birmingham, and we could see what's what. And so Birmingham, then, so you Alabama. could just you could just sit sit there and just bang 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 start you know pulling down ones and twos. And that's, that's where the value is, right? It's actually really, really hard to put together, you know, a portfolio, like portfolio yeah. transactions are difficult to track and find and they're yeah. competitive. They have, yeah. And so what everyone wants is these aggregators, right? They can put together the ones and twos and then, you know, kind of reposition them, manage them, stabilize them. Um, there's a lot of value in that. So, yeah. So like we're prepping in the third quarter, we got a large institutional fund wants to put somewhere between 120 and 300 million to work in the third quarter. Um, so Chris, he's a legend. Uh, he, his, his name's Chris. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he works on the strategies, sits down and, and what this is going to allow us to do, um, is, is also go direct with like different sources of capital because SFR today, it's like dominated by like, you know, you know, real estate, private equity guys like you that know the business, they know how to get into it. They can eye opportunities. 
But what we're seeing now is asset allocators that are just saying like, hey, I need five to 7% exposure to SFR. Yeah. I'm way too exposed into commercial right now. I need to diversify. And so I think what's happening is SFR doesn't have a, there's not like a giant pool of people that know it well enough. And then how do you actually like buy it, manage it? It's like a lot to think about. And so people want to just come to a solution and say, hey, I just need to put 50 million to work. How do I do that? And Chris will draft your strategy. He'll deploy your capital. And then we can kind of, you know, effectively show data around like, hey, this is how this is going to perform on our platform. Well, do you become like a private equity, like you're responsible for the returns? I mean, there's a world where we could start doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, we can distribute the as you get enough scale, like you can start distributing risk, right? You can say, hey, we're going to we're going to show you 6% returns on that asset because we can actually. But if you don't achieve them, is that on you or is that on like who's taking the accountability that the return wasn't achieved? I mean, I think it depends on a portfolio level. It's much easier to do on a one off like yeah. the home burn down. Yeah. It's a lot more challenging. So it, it looks more like an insurance product almost. Yeah. Uh, but on a portfolio basis, we can understand, especially if we're influencing the purchasing. Sometimes the best real estate deal ever is a burned down real estate deal and an, <laughs> yeah. and, and an insurance. Payback. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. kidding. Uh, um, so, yeah, we're uh, I mean, it's it's uh, it, but, it, you know, it, the co- the complexity on this is like level 10. Yeah, no, I, I I'm not saying this because I'm a smart guy. I've just been in this for 17 years. I'm. It's all starting to sink in right now, how it all fits together. And it, it is level 10. It's very achievable and it's uh it's kind of like becoming the Amazon of residential real estate. That's what my partner and I were the Amazon of SFR. And the real next level cheat code is once we're at scale, we're gonna have a resident network. Like we're building resident marketplace products where we're gonna actually start to monetize the resident in a way that now, you know, you're looking at, you know, buying an SFR, like our a Darwin unit will outperform. Because we're monetizing the resident. The resident has been this like incredible opportunity that's really never been paid attention to. Um, but the property management company, especially at scale, serves um, as like a trust network and we have guaranteed engagement. The residents have our apps, right? They have to go to us for maintenance requests, uh, they have to get renter's insurance. Um, we can actually start to monetize this in a way that's like very you know, I would say value uh, additive for the resident. So um, a good example in a workflow is, you know, we control the entire leasing process end to end. So you're not going outside and using other apps. And again, that's why we had to build our software. We own it all the way end to end. And integration is ultimately like our product. It's all integrated into one place. But a resident goes, views the home on Darwin, it's communicating uh, with us through chat um, about anything they need. They want to talk to someone, they can phone the friend. Um, they go into uh, a seamless kind of leasing experience, all controlled and automated um, in terms of the lease, the price, any questions they have. Um, the minute they sign their lease, they get the, congra- the congratulatory kind of experience. And then we can prompt them to, hey, would you like to uh, lock in your resident insurance? And so we're going to start monetizing all these different life cycle events. To use your like lawn care example, would you like to set up uh, lawn care? Would you like electricity? Would you, like- you want us to do your pool? Take that off your plate. Don't think about it, right? And so for us, we already have the network. Now we just- We can deliver it to you cheaper because we're at scale and we got better pricing. Correct. This is a scale play, 100%. And so, and again, I think it's for us, it was like, ah, the light bulb moment was really around the resident. But then it was like, okay, how do you go get 500,000 residents on a platform? Um, And for us then, so you had to build like an SFR investment management business to go actually get to scale. And so that's like the, the triple axle. 
could like partner with Uber and say, if you're in a Darwin home, you can get. I mean, you could be logging into your pay your rent and you can get a DoorDash ad for restaurants in your neighborhood. It says Cheesecake Factory delivering. Go get it. The world, Cheesecake now delivers. If the world needed anything, it needed a 15-page menu, which yeah. uh, which Cheesecake delivered. Yeah. And then they said, <laughs> you can deliver all 15 pages of this menu. Yep. Um, I mean, we used to have these. Uh, we, had, we had local, when we were operating in DoorDash in the early days, uh, we had, uh, I'll never forget this. So we had like houses or apartments in all our different cities. Right, because we didn't have offices, we didn't want to take office risk, so we just go get like a two bedroom house, like stand up a team that was working out of there. You'd have drivers come in. A lot of offices were like, "Hey, why is there like a hundred guys out front, you know, trying to get in this door?" It's like, "Oh, those are our driver orientations." You know, that was frowned upon in any office building, so we'd go get a house. So I'll never forget the guy who runs the he's the VP of Ops and Platform there now. His name's Casey, and it, he ran the the LA market for us for a long time, and he we had this place, and he he had he had this garage. And he had converted his garage into a menu team. And so he had these people that you'd pay off Craigslist to just sit there and take that 15-page menu and just like crank it in. Crank it in. Yeah. And so we had in all these garages around the United States, you had these menu teams just cranking. I freaking love it. Yeah. That's the cool thing about building new platforms. Like you said, like it's all a gray area and you can just stay ahead of it. There's no right answers, right? right? And so it's just like... You know, and a lot of people. Worst case, cheesecake calls, and they're like, "Quit freaking telling people that we're delivering." Oh, I mean, we used to hang up the cease and desist orders in our office. Yeah. So we used to get a few of them. The the In and Out one, In and Out, In and Out Burger used to come after us. Well, now I picture you like grabbing a lawn guy's flyer and being like, "We do lawns in Orlando," getting them like a hundred customers, and then calling and be like, "Hey, we created these flyers for Mm you." Uh, Yeah. Now you're gonna pay us. Marketing expense. If you're a business in Orlando, Dallas, Phoenix, and flyers <laughs> are going out saying we do lawns, <laughs> uh, you don't have to look any further. It's yeah. not being done by you. It's being done by your friends. We will gladly, we will gladly send you some volume. We don't have to go like too deep into this, uh, but just for your experience, mm-hmm. I can. G- I'll. I'll start. Uh, we owned a 27 acre piece of land here. We owned it for five years. And for three of those years, uh, one, I really didn't even know what build to rent was. I don't think it was really heard of. Everybody that called on it was multi townhomes for sale. COVID hit. And I think the, f- the next 10 calls we got were build to rent. Yeah. Everybody was raising a fund. Everybody was doing it. Mm-hmm. And it took me about six months to go, this is the next huge thing. And now... Yeah. Graystar, Blackstone. I mean, you you can't name a company that's not doing it. Everyone's okay, that's, in it. The that's builder, my home builder, How, home big, how big is this going right now? How big are we talking here? I think it's huge. I think if you think about it structurally, you have a shortage of single family rentals. And I think that you have a large part of the population that wants to move into single family rentals and can't afford it. Um, there's a lot of headline risk in SFR. So again, SFR, single family rentals, scattered site. That's how we think about it. Build for rent, BFR, right? Build for rent's been happening for a long time. Just got rebranded in the last like 36 months and whoever they hired to rebrand this thing did a really good job. But I think at the end of the day, like institutional funds want to participate in the yield opportunity that it, that is kind of these this this opportunity where people are wanting to move into their own space. Um, and I think that this allows for them to be part of the solution. Um, we're creating new supply in Fort Worth. 
and you know i think it's a horizontal apartment building effectively yep. and um it's usually single parcel single tax parcel so um you know i think that it will be built specifically for rent the rent use case all the materials uh the builders are in into this um and i think that it's a huge opportunity in the right markets yeah i think where people are getting aggressive we saw a deal you know it was a large you know build for rent opportunity outside of like omaha and i see that and i'm like uh people are going to stretch this thing just like any like capital chasing something so aggressively there's going to be some you know interesting assumptions uh built into those models i think that sfr is kind of in flight i think build for rent in the right areas um will do very very well i think when you start thinking like hey there's people building you know a thousand units you know 70 minutes outside of austin uh i get i started asking some questions yeah because i think just the absorption rate is going to be really challenging and it's hard to predict but i think if it's done right it's a massive opportunity i think it also delivers real value for residents i mean i think we were we were managing we're managing a deal i think it's like 76 units in frisco townhome community all built to rent amazing great product residents love it uh, i'm sure the investors did really well they were a little ahead of the curve frisco's a damn miracle well dallas 12 10 years ago we were i was living in uptown when i was single and we would drive up to oklahoma to go gamble and you would drive through frisco and it was i mean fields you'd pass that corner and prosper would be mm-hmm. on sanders house mm-hmm. on it was like nothing and now it is a metropolis and yeah. it's, it's unbelievable yeah um okay I think I know the answer. What do institutional owners care about and what do retail owners care about from an owner per side when you're mm-hmm. reporting to the owner? Is it pretty much the same? Like how much money am I making? Or are there subtle nuances that are changing? Obviously, the institutional guys have like maybe more of a gun to their head that these things are doing well, whereas mm-hmm. the retail person, this might be like a retirement opportunity. But mm-hmm. As you think about like the 10x and the 10-year vision, how might retail owners use the product differently than institutional owners, or if at all? Yeah, I think that the world is moving to more of like a self-service kind of environment for retail. I think that um, the retail owner typically has one or two homes. Um, This is part of their retirement, their money. Um, Every dollar matters in large part, right? Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're very, uh, involved in the decision-making process. Yeah. Um, I think with institutions, um, they're typically, you know, when, when, so I think in retail, the relationship matters, you know, they kind of want to talk to their property manager. I remember we talked about, yeah. And so I think, you you know, there's a lot of opportunity through like investor portal and things like that, that, that allows for kind of better communication channels. Um, and mechanisms. I think the institutional funds, they really care about data. Um, they really care about performance. Uh, they really care about the accounting. Um, and the ops are just like a table stake. They yeah. assume that you turn the home and then, it, but they're, um, they exist in a way that's like you set like clear expectations up front. It's like, Hey, we're going to go re We're going to go through a re-resident process, move out to move in. Expectation is 45 days. 50 days, whatever the benchmark that we set based on the asset class in the market. Great. Go hit your target. You're mapping to a KPI. They're very, very demanding, but in a, just like a different kind of way. Yeah. Um, but they're also in a lot of ways easier to work with because they really value the resident. 
and they actually have a lot of money to spend. Yeah. So one of the biggest challenges that we have experienced in retail is the turnover process. So if you think about trying to really balance the resident experience, you want to do a great turn, get the LVP put in and get out those nasty carpets or whatever. A lot of retail owners are like, let's just, just get someone in the house. I got to make the mortgage payment. I don't really care. You know, they're not trying to invest in the resident experience as much. That's been our experience. Institutional funds, they're caring. what's our retention? What's our resident satisfaction? And I think that's like a big narrative violation. The institutional funds care more about the resident experience in our experience than retail owners. Retail owners just care, hey, how do I spend $0 on the turn? Yeah. You know what I mean? And not have a turn. Not have a turn. <laughs> Can you like when, you know. Lower rent so they'll during, stay in. <laughs> during COVID, like, you know, retail owners, hey, I know it's COVID, but like, can we pre-lease that home? Like, no, we're not sending like people to go view a home during COVID, right? Yeah. They'd have to physically move out of the house before we're going to show it. Yeah. The institutions get that stuff. And and so I think that that's like the bit, that was a big learning for us is the institutions really care about the resident experience um, because yeah, they really care about retention. Are we headed to a world where uh, somebody could lease a home like an apartment where they go online, they see it and they're moving in the next day? Uh, yeah, uh, yes. I think that we have a lot of people that have leased homes sight unseen. So specifically in some of these hubs, Dallas, Austin, yeah. um, they're moving from wherever it is yeah. uh, that they were living and they're going online. And yeah, I think that as the trust network continues to be built around like this idea, Invitation Homes pioneered this, American Homes Forens doing it. Um, as you build these brands, people understand like, hey, it's kind of like a Graystar. If you and I move into Graystar, you know, down the street or in Dallas or in Miami, like, you know, it's a Graystar. Yeah. It's it's kind of tracking to hospitality, and I think that's eventually where SFR goes once it's stable. Obviously, it's harder to execute in SFR, like the consistency. Yeah. Um, but that's ultimately what the management infrastructure should deliver over time as you build the product and the ops uh, infrastructure. It's really a consistent experience. Is the home going to like wow you? It's not the Four Seasons in Maui, but like, hey, it's clean, it's functional, it's safe, yeah. and it is what it we said it is. So it's consistency. And that's what building national brands is all about. Um, that's why that's why this will exist. It's not it's not like, oh, yeah, we'll this like this isn't like a pipe dream. No. I mean, there will be just SFR taking brands. All the pieces of the puzzle and bringing them together. Yeah. There will be SFR brands. Like, you know, uh, one of our investors, Fifth Wall, they um they just say, Oh, yeah, you guys, the, the way that they have thought about this, you guys are the gray star of SFR. Yeah. And so um, yeah, I think that that's fine as a comparison. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't be. I'm giving you the Amazon. I, Amazon's way better. I'm giving you the yeah, when I Amazon. Coinbase. You guys can go lick your wounds, but Amazon, yeah. you're in. Amazon of SFR. Well, our our goal though, it, when you, you ask about acquisitions, construction, management, when you think about this modular set of services, we have so the client that's going. This is crazy. The client that's going live in the third quarter. Uh, they're deploying in a couple different cities. I think we're going to do four cities: Orlando, Tampa, Birmingham, Dallas. We're going modular in these cities. So in Birmingham, we're acquisitions, renovations, management. We're monetizing the whole thing, right? And and then in Dallas, they're like, oh, we have, we're, I think they're working with some big Dallas provider of construction. So like, oh, we don't need that right now. So we'll just do acquisitions management. So that's a, that also allows us to sell in like a totally different way Yeah. in terms of like a suite of products and services. So we have uh, fund accounting. So some groups don't have internal accounting. We can do fund accounting. I hired the, you know, the head of property management accounting from Tricon. She works for us now with her broader team over. 
Um, so you want fund accounting? We've got the lady from Tricon. She's the best in the business. And so we can set these services. You want asset management? Oh, we have the asset management team as well. Because like that's not the same thing as property management. Everything's for a fee. And so again, it's just like, what do these funds need with the idea that we're solving for increasing participation? And that's why, like, yeah, we're, I mean, we're talking to like sovereign funds that, you know, we were talking about one. I need to get you that intro, but like there's a couple sovereign funds with us. Yeah, SFR. Great. And those those are the those are the best customers because they they'll uh you know they're pretty hands off. Let's go back to the resident monetization yes. experience for a little bit. Yes. Because uh yeah, like you could sell air filters. Yeah. Like you could sell you could also sell like credit cards. Could you sell like this is maybe getting what could you sell like paper towels to them? I know they could just go to Amazon and order paper towels, but I don't know if Darwin is buying a hundred million dollars of paper towels a year off of Amazon. I think we would want to cut that as like, you you don't want to really be in the like supply chain business in that, in that way. I think you want to actually have a, I think, listen, we'll solve for this and, and this will be an iterative process. You and I could, you know, Dream. throw stuff at the wall. Yeah. Like we're going to sell this and that. I think the reality is it's a lead gen opportunity for services that exist and are happening around the business. Yeah. And we're a consolidation point. Yeah. And so, but I think for us, the guardrail and all these things is the resident experience. So when I sign my lease, if within 10 seconds, I'm prompted to get resident insurance, like yeah. I already have to do that anyway. So what do I go? I got to go online I fill out some forms. It's a pain in the neck, right? But I've already actually put all my my information into the system. If I can now auto prompt just add resident insurance, we're underwriting it. That's simple. And like if the fees are the same, why wouldn't I just kind of do that in kind of these attach attach rate kind of opportunities? Um, and then yeah, and then you can customize it. So if you're living in Florida, everyone in Florida apparently has a pool. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, would you want pool service? Yeah, sure. Like it's a trusted local guy. You just moved to Orlando. We can kind of skim that. And I think it's all, I think, again, the, the philosophy was built on the idea of value, value add. Um, and it's not like, so I personally, like there's this resident benefits package that people like tack on in the industry. It's like a talking point. It's like, we send you air filters like once a month, we change the air filter. It's like, I don't change the air filter on my personal residence once a month. You know what I mean? That, and, but you're going to get a $15 bill for that air filter every single month. It's like, really? Yeah, yeah. They're just like, Come on, man. You know what I mean? And then it's like, oh, 24-7 maintenance support. You know, we're in charge of the resident for that. That's like property management in a nutshell. Yeah. Like, we're charging <laughs> you for our product. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're charging you double for our promise. Exactly. Like, um, oh, thank you. Um, so I think for us, it's like value add. And it's like, hey, we'll actually coordinate the lawn care so you don't have to do it. And we're, we're not we're not overcharging you because that's where you... You're make, actually saving money because you have scaled You have pricing. scale. And then we're actually, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, you can monetize the vendors, right? Because you're tapping into the vendor mar- like right, marketing right. budget effectively. So the resident monetization, though, like we, we're working with the partner, this like next level, they're like a data company, like big time. And they're like, oh, we could underwrite the resident and like sell credit cards. Yep. And so that's where it becomes really interesting or auto loans. Oh, you paid your rent on time for the sixth straight month. Have you thought about getting a new auto loan? Could underwrite that. 
So you just leased a house. You get a free uh, Cheesecake Factory dinner <laughs> if, yeah. if used within a week. Yeah, exactly. 100%. If I mean, we that, that's, we that's low sell, hanging if, fruit. If like five listeners don't at least go to Cheesecake Factory after this, they're already all going to be signing up for property management. Good old Cheesecake Factory. Okay, here's something that I've been thinking about lately that I have heard more of, and maybe you've thought about it, maybe you haven't, maybe you don't care. We're talking about managing for the renter. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest needs of people that need actually a manager of their house is like the person that owns their own house. Yep. They don't realize like people ask me all the time, like, why might it be better better to rent than own? Well, because if you rent from a company like y'all that that can fix a water heater for $400 and it's going to cost the one-off guy or girl $2,000 to fix it, like mm -hmm. your scale to get anything done is not there. Mm -hmm. You know, rich people have house managers that do everything. I think like one of the biggest untapped markets in the world is just people that own their houses that don't want to have to deal with all the headaches. I 100%. mean, our our uh, lawn care guy fired us the other day, nice. so we had two weeks of like no lawn care. Yeah. We like the whole deal. It was like a, a whole shenanigans at our house. But there's just like now with three kids and working, and my wife's out. You running have the third errands, kid, by the way. We're having um, him on August third, so yeah. we're getting awesome. close. You're ready, all right. But like, I would pay for a home manager, yeah. and if you could tell me like, yeah, you're paying us, but you're also saving on all these services, that seems like a big market. Are you interested Massive. in that market? You're damn right we are. <laughs> yeah, baby. So if you think about it, though, <laughs> so this is all about go-to-market. So we said very early on, what's the number one? This, if you think about home management, okay, managing an asset, whether it's your home or your single-family rental down the street, um, the needs of the asset are the same. The use case from the owner, the customer, is different. And so the go-to-market's challenging on that side of the business. We've looked at this. Um, the CAC to LTV, so the customer acquisition cost, lifetime value is very, very challenging to make work. Mm. And so what you need is you need scale. And so if you have scale, so if you think about, all right, I want to build home management infrastructure in every major city in America, what is the best go-to-market to build that? It's single-family rental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got technicians and vans just circling every part of Fort yeah, Worth, yeah. but you need massive scale. But then that's where you you kind of extend longer term. Amazon of housing. That's like a natural extension. But it's the the calculus is super different if you're already at scale and you're fully utilizing those technicians and those vendors. Yeah. Um, but going to market and trying to scale that business in the one-off, the CAC to LTV mechanics don't make sense. Got it. And a lot of businesses, some businesses have failed trying to chase that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like getting you is like challenging and Retaining you is probably also challenging. I and you know I think that so, but once you're at scale, it becomes a totally different, yeah, calculus. Yeah, but yes, I think like we love that. That's like interestingly enough, that's one of the most common questions I get from venture capitalists because they all have to say the exact same things. Hey, can you like manage my house? My like AC stopped working. I gotta like go yep. on Yelp. Yep. Like, and you have a bunch of this generation of folks that are kind of extending. They're buying homes. They're living in their homes. Whatever it is. They grew up with property managers. Well, the other part is like the boomer generation just knew how to fix shit. Mm -hmm. Like it broke, like dad went out in the back yeah. and like fix. Our generation doesn't know how to fix a damn thing. No. Uh -uh. No. Right? We go on YouTube and like find like, you you know, so George when, uh, the air conditioner. So when, uh, yeah, so you'll get kicked out of this. When, um, <laughs> when we had the freeze, right? 
Like I had a pipe burst in my house and you were in Austin. I'm screwed. Yeah. So what did I do? I called our technician. Yeah, that's true. Right. And I was like, Hey, I need some help over here. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think it's, um, it's a massive, massive opportunity. You can sell through realtor networks. You can. You it's, can probably have even like Home Depot and people sell for you. Like, but you hey, need you scale. should use Darwin because they know that there is going to be more products being bought from Home Depot whenever. Yep. I, I think it's absolutely something that will, again, it's something that will exist. I think for for these businesses that are local with national scale and reach, it's it's all comes down to like, how do you get to scale? What's that map to scale? And for us, yeah, the, the SFR opportunity, the SFR use case makes the most sense do you have any desire to buy property managers that are already local in a market so not it's not our business okay so if you think about what we're doing those are relationships. you're basically just buying the lease like you're buying the contracts you're buying a contract but you're you're buying so if you think about what property management is at the local level historically it's a relationship-based business so it's, pre- it's it's largely like local owners that hired the local property manager. They got a cell phone number and text him. They'll drive by the house. Like we're like McDonald's, like we're building standardization and scale. So like if someone's used to like the local prop- property manager with his cell phone number and he takes you to dinner once in a while, like we're not that. We're basically uh, standard standardized, consistent service that just delivers results. And so I think it's just like there's a mismatch in expectations with those businesses. Um, and so I think that's an interesting like PE like opportunity to go roll up part yeah. of the industry. Um, but for us, I don't think it makes sense. But it, it may, I know a guy uh, that's operating in a Birmingham, a friend of mine, and he's doing it, doing it real successfully, which is a, it's a different go to market, different approach. Yeah, yeah. You don't really there's not a ton of value that you gain. By bot, unless you, can, I can get to the same outcome in I don't know, sixty days if you just follow an institution. Six months, yeah, yeah less. Yeah. I mean, and I don't have any of the you know kind of upfront go out buy integrate you know integrating those owners with one or two houses just incredibly painful. Are most of the people that you're hiring coming from the property management industry? Or are you just kind of training new people to that don't come with all these predisposed ideas? Or is it both? It's a mix. Okay. And so I think for the tactical execution, you need people with experience. Yeah. So the person who does collections for us has done collections in the property management industry for a while. The person who leads our uh, customer success infrastructure teams, yeah. he did it for Amherst. I don't know, you know Amherst? Yeah, yeah. So he, he was doing it for 45,000 units. So it's like, how do you manage a call center for 45,000 homes? Well, let's just get the guy who's done it before. Yeah. Um, the guy, our SVP of property management, he managed for ResiCap in Atlanta. It's one of the largest kind of end to end kind of integrated management companies. Um, so yeah, for it's a mix. Um, and so I think, you know, for the technical jobs, for some of some of the leadership, it's 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 some tech folks and you know, finance folks. Um, but on the ops side, I think there's a lot of horsepower that comes from the industry. Because there's just like things that are just like for like you don't you don't say like from first principles, how do you like do an inspection? Like you and I aren't going to go recreate that wheel. Let's just go get the guy who knows how to do inspections at scale. Yeah. And so that's like a tech flaw is a lot of tech guys will be like, oh, we're going to like change this industry. It's like, no, nowhere you can actually create leverage. Yeah. And like, we're not going to create leverage in like the construction process. Mm. So like the guy who runs construction for us, he ran, he was the first uh, construction guy at Open Door. Uh, he's Pulte, Lenar, and then he was at SMS Assist, which was, he's the, I think, one of the largest SFR construction management companies in America. 
So when you're like, how do you do 500 SFR projects a month? You and I aren't going to like whiteboard our way to that answer. Yeah. And so you just, you go get the guy who knows how to do it and you pair him with some product management and engineering horsepower and they can kind of craft a solution to build it for scale. Okay. Um, I wanted to make a comment and then I want to circle back there. Well, let's just circle back there real quick. Sure. I think it's kind of cool. Cause I think construction is one of those things, like you said, it's really not, it can become efficient, but you're not going to change construction because there's local rules, there's local permitting, there's local subs. Like yep. it's about as local as a business as there ever was. Yep. Um, when that guy comes on board, we kind of talked about this at the beginning of the conversation, but this is more for my own pleasure of learning how this gets done. Mm -hmm. Do you just, does he kind of start, obviously he observes the business, but he knows what he's solving. I got to get 500 of these done at once. Mm -hmm. Do you just say like, Hey, for the next month, meet with this product or you're like always attached to this product team. And like, how many times is he actually meeting with them? Is it like a consistent cadence? Like you identify, like we need to build a tool for this. Mm -hmm. Part of your job is making sure these 500 get built, but it's also making sure we've crafted a solution. Like those are your two missions here. Mm -hmm. How yeah. much time does he spend on the build a tool mission? I think it comes back. It, it's, I mean, it's really a partnership and it comes back to helping our product and biz ops teams uh, understand the problems. So it's like, I, I think, you know, using any property management workflow, whether it's like leasing or turns or construction, it's like you kind of get into this diagramming world of like, hey, this is how the process works today, like within the industry. And like, where is there opportunity for leverage? Where is there opportunity for product and automation? And I think that's where the partnership really happens. Um, so it's really, yeah, it really comes back to informing the product management teams about like what the pro process is and what problems do, have you experienced, you know, when you're trying to do 80 projects next month in Atlanta. And a lot of it will still come back to like the local problem, but there is some opportunity for, for product efficiencies and then maybe communication tools and things like that. Got it. Okay. So, but yeah, I think it's, um, there's the onboarding time to impact in the business is, is like fairly long Yeah, because you kind of have to kind of build the machine and, and a lot of it is like you start operating the business, learn where the problems are, and then you solve the problems um, through some, you know, kind of prioritization framework. One of the things I like about the institutional clients is they're also like super sticky. Yeah. If anybody's ever tried moving a thousand homes to a new property manager with a thousand addresses and a thousand, it's one thing to move 300 apartment units all under one address mm -hmm. to a new manager. Yep. It's another thing to move a thousand homes across the city to a new manager. It's a very sticky. Well, and you have the accounting layer, right? Yeah. You own, you're like deep, you own the yeah. finance, like the accounting and the reporting layers are super deep. And so, yeah, you, you hit your targets and I mean, you're you're going to be sticky until they transact and like potentially sell the portfolio to invitation homes or something like that. But like our goal is to even if we were to kind of transact, like say there's a partner that builds 500 units, they have a five year fund cycle or whatever they want to sell the portfolio off. Our goal is to actually retain the management on the back end. Like we know the units, we have the data, uh, we're operating them well. There's not a lot of upside for uh, the change in management to kind of switch the management if if the units are performant. So yeah, it's very sticky. An overnight success in our business that just kind of happened. We've sold three portfolios, retained management on all of them. We now manage three and a half million square feet. It's amazing. And they all went, they, they interviewed all the big boys. And 
at the end of the day, there's just um, one, I think we do a good job, but there's just a lot of headache in moving property managers. There is a lot of headache. It's a lot of headache. Different accounting systems, different everything. Yep. You're just introducing risk. Yeah. And so these, they, yeah, they, they know the process, they know the assets, they're local, whatever it is. Um, Yeah. I mean, switching property management companies is a pain in the ass. Yeah. All right. We'll kind of end it. I think one of the things that makes the podcast special is uh, we talk about things that are current. Mm-hmm. This is you're the first person kind of in tech with VC money that's been on in a while. Uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. Things have changed a lot over the last ninety days. They have. What are you? How are you thinking about it? What are some interesting things that that we should know as listeners? Yeah, I think that the last cycle in venture it created the opportunity to build a lot of immense businesses. So I think when we take a step back and think about Darwin and you think about the compound business, you need a lot of money to build these businesses. That's the reality of it. DoorDash, I think we raised 2.4 billion to build that. I think Uber raised 10 plus, you know, Airbnb, like all these businesses, they're in, they, they, they suck a lot of capital to build them, but there's a big prize at the end, right? Um, I think what's happened is it was risk on in venture for the last 10 years. And I think the the ground is is definitely shifting beneath our feet. I think that uh, VCs are going pencils down, largely speaking. There's a couple deals you'll hear about getting done anecdotally, but I think it's going to go pencils down for the summer at the very kind of minimum. I think people are trying to recalibrate and understand pricing. I think that's what's really, really challenging. If you think about you know Series A, Series B, Series C, and beyond, um, everyone's trying to understand what is the next investor thinking so this all starts at the public market works back right because like ultimately a vc's job especially an early stage vc they got to sell their product to the next investor all the way up the line to get liquidity eventually right yeah so you have very specialized seed investors series a investors bc and then you have these growth stage guys basically the public markets came out and said we don't want any of the garbage you guys are sending us anymore and so you're seeing just i mean absolute hammering in the growth businesses, right? I mean, door, I'm still a you know decent sized DoorDash shareholder. I mean, that that business went from 240 a share to 55, I think. Just, I mean, and that's a good business. Like, I mean, and, and I, think, I think there's a lot of good businesses out there that are that are still performing, and their fundamentals haven't really changed, but they're just getting hammered. Yeah. Um, and so I think that uh, the VC market is a bit spooked right now, and I think that people are trying to understand like where is this going to land. And then I think um, we had a lot of craze in the market over the last 18 months where um, you had a lot of money deployed, a lot of growth stage capital put to work, um, and a lot of it's not working out. And so I think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of comparison is like, oh, is this like, you know, 2000.com? Like, I don't really know what's going to happen in the next like 24 months. Um, But I think that a lot of companies are going to go into, a mode where they're in they're conserving capital and they're not trying to get priced because like you don't want to get priced right now the comps are all wrong and so i, I think yeah i think that the vc market it's it's definitely going to slow down or it's pencils down i think people will look around in january see what's what see where the fed is um see what the macro picture looks like because i think on a higher level um you know it's it's hard for any investor to put money to work today. So I think you have the global theater piece, right? You have inflation raging. 
you have kind of uncertainty around like, are we going to be in a recession in the next six to 12 to 18 months? Highly likely. What are the impacts of those kind of things and decisions? And so it's hard to make sound investment decisions. And I think VC is is part of that. And so, um, yeah, I think the VC market is going to cool. I think a lot of companies are going to get hammered. Um, and so for us, uh, we're lucky enough to be in SFR. I think that there's just natural tailwinds that'll continue in SFR. Um, but I think you're going to see, uh, the VC market change quite dramatically in the yeah. next like 24 months. And it's just a risk off period right now. Yeah. What happens to like billion dollar companies at any point do VCs say, uh, stop running it, send us the money back. Yes. Yeah. Even like big companies. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that. The reality on the ground is there's a lot of like zombie companies out there right now that just had massive valuations. I, I look at the public markets and they're, listen, I think we're in a transitional phase right now on the public side where um, you've got Redfin, right? Redfin's worth $800 million today. Redfin's like a legit good business. Um, and so then you have these like private market high flying businesses that are worth $2 billion. Like, How does that ever make sense? Right. And so, um, yeah, I think that we're going to go through some period of like normalization. And then I think, you know, depending on what the market is voting on, are we are we valuing growth? Are you evaluating free cash flow? Like, how are we thinking about these things? Those um, sit that signal kind of like works, it works its way down into the venture ecosystem. So um, I think that, again, the companies that have to go out and raise capital in this environment. Um, they're going to be in for down rounds, potentially unfundable. Um, and yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of zombie companies that are kind of in no man's land. Mm. One of the biggest challenges in venture is the valuation trap. And so the valuation trap, you, for whatever reason, you have a competitive deal, deal gets bid up, you're overvalued, the market shifts beneath your feet, and all of a sudden you can't make the math work on your valuation and you need to go kind of continue to raise money because you have to grow into that valuation. Yeah. You're in big trouble because you have morale problems. Uh, you have loss of control problems. There's there's just like an immense set of challenges there. And so, I mean, we lived through that at DoorDash. So at DoorDash, our Series B, uh, 600 million. And we were like a decently small business at the time, but we had incredible metrics and momentum. And this was in 2016. The market shifted on us. And all of a sudden, we were just scrambling. And there I think- There was a dip that year. 100%, 2016, yeah. 17, it was really hard to raise capital. Yeah, yeah. And and it was all like sentiment shifts in these businesses so fast, right? And so like, look at crypto. I mean, I think Coinbase 12 months ago, I don't remember when exactly, but they were like an $80, 100000000000 billion business. Now they're, you know, they're scrambling. And so I, I think the sentiment can shift so quickly. And I think that it's really a mindset shift for founders today that they've got to get their 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 heads around the fact that like, this is, this is a new normal. And uh, a lot of businesses are going to have to go into survival mode and they're going to have to get really efficient. And I think they're going to have to right size their businesses um, and avoid getting priced. Like you don't want to get priced in this environment. Uh, were we saying that there, there's a potential that there could be a million tech jobs lost? I mean, I heard that number thrown around. Yeah. Well, what are all those people going to do? I guess in there's not really new jobs for them to get into tech or maybe they just sit on the sidelines for a bit or well i think the irony of it is is like there's not like for every tech guy that was getting paid half a million bucks to be a you know whatever they were mm -hmm. at that company mm -hmm. 
welcome back to the real world. Yeah. Not everybody's getting paid a half a million bucks. Yeah. I think um, your boy Elon, he basically, you know, said, hey, everyone's coming back to work now. Like the 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 leverage shifted back yeah. to the employer really, okay. really quickly. Um, you know, I mean, six months ago, everyone's trying to figure out how do we retain and, you know, keep everyone happy. And I think, listen, culture, everything, that is what drives successful businesses. But it's very clear in the data and kind of anecdotes that a lot of the power existed with the employees. We're going to work in technology businesses. We're going to work from home, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, I think that's shifted. Um, a 14-year-old bow market makes people think they can do a lot of crazy yeah, they, like low rates. I mean, a lot yeah. of a lot of this stuff was predicated on low rates, right? So I think that um, the tech, the difference between now and two thousand, again, two thousand was like a, it was a sector. It was like tech, right? It was this up and coming like growth sector. Today, it's everywhere. It's everything. It's the driver yeah. of the U.S. economy. And so when you see growth businesses, which have carried a lot of like the last kind of cycle of innovation and growth and value creation over the last 10 years when they're getting you know taken to the woodshed um it's going to have a lot of of kind of secondary and tertiary effects yeah. and, and these knock-ons i don't think are well understood um because we're going to go into a recession uh and i and i think that like these tech companies are going to act accordingly and i don't think anybody is spared i think you know the netflix is the kind of Google's, the Amazon fulfillment centers, like all these things are going to get impacted in some way or another. And so I think that it will be, um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of like right sizing in the tech industry and that's going to have like profound kind of knock on effects. I'll tell you where there's opportunity, people. Industrial. Blue, industrial real estate, blue collar work. We need more blue collar work in this country than ever before. You know, that's my jam, right? I know that's your jam. Yeah. So whenever the Darwin chapter closes, I'm going trade school straight up. I literally right now I'm trying to figure out what my next idea is. That's it. I am. I fully believe whoever can make blue collar work cool. And there's a lot of ways to do it and legitimately war on college. The coolest part about it right now is you can actually make a ton of money doing it. I know um, we see it every day. These guys control their own. You know, the joke in our business is like, how much does it cost to get a plumber to your house on Friday night? Yeah. Whatever the plumber says, right? Whatever the it's plumber like, says. It's like you're he's you're paying them. And I think someone has to go out and rebrand HVAC. Yeah. Plumbing. And that that is like that's my that's like my personal mission. Um, so my next business, and I, I have this rant with a lot. I've I've already gotten people saying, Hey, like I want to like put my like I can't do that. But um trade schools, I haven't figured out the go-to-market yet, haven't spent enough time thinking about it. Um, but someone's got to go out and and structurally solve this for two reasons. One, to get people skills that they can go monetize and drive kind of the next phase of kind of America. Yeah. Okay. Two, like our infrastructure needs it. I think the average, the average age of our plumbing groups at Darwin in Texas is like 60. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think it's Bill Gates or, you know, it's Bezos. It says like, you know, you know, when he's predicting the future, you know, he's like, I don't, I just want to know what's not going to change in 10 years. I can tell you what's not going to change. You're going to have a toilet. You're going to have HVAC in Fort Worth. And some robots not coming in your, you're not having a drone come in and like, yeah, you know, clean your toilet, whatever it is. Right. And so someone's got to go out and change that. And I think it's such a cool opportunity to create this new form of micro entrepreneurship. You have, you have these guys and gals on like, I don't know, these like web three platforms, I don't, like just trying to like make money doing whatever it is. We were talking about it, uh, selling shoes on goat. 
right? Like you've got all these people kind of creating these new ways to make money, but like, why not go make like money after like developing a skill? We need to move to like a skill-based economy and people need to go be micro entrepreneurs. You can be, you know, your own little plumbing operation. Here's the other thing that I think but, is so underrated about this. The money's good. I think physically people are more satisfied from a hard day's work 100%. than they are sitting behind a computer all day. 100%. But I played golf uh, in South Carolina last summer and my caddy, um, he was probably like 28 years old. And, um, you know, most caddies, it's like a whole culture. They've been there forever. And this was like a young kid. He's kind of didn't, didn't fit in. Let's just put it that way. And I was like, you know, you out here for the summer, but he was, he was old enough to where I was like, this isn't just a summer job. And he's like, yeah, um, I worked on wall street for six years. I quit and I moved back and lived with my parents for a summer. And I was just going to caddy for the summer while I waited to kind of see what I was going to do next. And he's like, and that at the time it had been uh, now two years. So he had been caddying for two years and I'm like, well, why are you doing it? And he's like, well, I'll never go back. And he said, I can't tell you the freedom that you have that when I leave the golf course, there are no emails, mm -hmm. there are no phone calls, mm -hmm. there is nothing for me to do when I leave work. Yep. Work is at work. Yep. I think so much of society is dying for that life mm -hmm. again, where work is at work. And if you don't want to be in an industry where you're being emailed and talked to all the time, um, so you get to make a lot of money you get to kind of stay in shape and like to have skill-based labor augmented reality and stuff is going to make things easier to yep. get done. Like yep. just put on the glasses and it'll show you how, how to do you fix. train people. How yeah. do you train people? Yep. Dyson Krupp, the elevator people put out a video that was like, you're wearing these glasses and you're staring at like the motor in an elevator. And it's just telling you like, turn this knob, mm -hmm. do this. What took two years to train could take like two weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've thought about this thing all the time of like, you don't have to email anybody when you leave. Like I've, I hate looking at my phone at yeah. like nine o'clock at night. It's the worst. It's the worst. Yeah. You want to ruin your night's sleep? Do that. Look at your phone right before you go to bed and destroy your, your dreams. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you want to take the heart rate up, that's, that's what you do. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a, I hadn't actually thought about that. Um, as like another benefit, but I think that's right. I think we've achieved peak white collar. Yep. And so I think everything in like our world goes in cycles. And so we went through this, you talk about an aggressive like ramp was like all this education, all of these like sophisticated white collar jobs. And I think, yeah, maybe on the other side of this is, you know, less uh, tech involvement, less like Slack messaging at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> uh, people, people are so connected. And I like, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't attempt to to kind of understand some of the complexity around, you know, mental health and yeah. like connectedness, but there's definitely been a rise in the two. And so there's a world where, yeah, people who they, they do their physical work. That's I, I, I find physical work is very, very satisfying. It's tangible. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you can actually disconnect. That yeah. world exists right now. It's, it's for you. It, it is there. It's not like a dream. And there's a lot of people that live it. Um, Someone's got to make it cool. Someone's got to go high school by high school, ground up, bottoms up, war on college. Um, and you just have to change the narrative, right? Like, I don't think you probably, uh, you grew up in El Paso. I grew up in, you know, outside of Palm Springs. Um, and I think, 
Yeah, I love yeah, golf yeah. You do. Uh, we got to get on the golf course out there. Yeah, we do. Um, but you know, I didn't grow up in an environment where someone was pitching on, "Hey, let's be an HVAC tech. Let's yeah. uh, let's go. You know, do plumbing." Well, because or the narrative, the the colleges got institutionalized. Yep. It became it's a business. It's I a mean, business. Harvard is a big hedge fund that that sells education on mm -hmm. the side. Mm -hmm. um, people don't know that. Same with SC. It's USC. Sets, they're all yeah. they all are. They're yeah. all big endowments. I'm not saying they're not good for some people. If you want to be a doctor, go to college. You want to do something that that really needs that education, but you could start making money at 18. Yep. You could be like very financially secure by the time most of your friends are getting out of college. Right. Um and it's consistent. You're, it's consistent. you're never going to have like job, you know, questions. If you can if you perform and you understand like skill-based work, um once you like learn that skill, um you can monetize it and i think for us it's really about you know shifting the narrative making it cool yeah. education um and then you know execution someone has to build the platform to go train these people that's that's the big question mark in my mind right now yeah. is training at scale yeah how do you do that how do you pay for it is it like this income share agreement i don't know if you track yeah, yeah. austin already like yeah. he's doing the bloom tech thing yep that's super interesting um i think that uh there's a lot of opportunity to help people, yeah. Um, help them build skills, and it'll like change kind of the next chapter for the U.S. as well. And you can create tools. I mean, I think where these people get stuck and and actually fail is when they have to start billing their clients and mm -hmm. like doing all the task work. Mm -hmm. You can build those tools. That that's can it. Make it. You could have a one guy in a you know. I mean, that's all. That's all product. That's all automation. I mean, that that stuff's. I'm know. rooting for Darwin to be the the Amazon of real estate. All right. There is no doubt about that. Okay. But I also am rooting for you to to have the time to do this. My wife knows. I will, go, I will go do it with you. Yes, we will. All right. Start it here in Texas. But if you're going to take 10 years, you might have to be like a board member and I might have to go start this. Thing. I know. I know. I, uh, ben Rubenstein is a friend of mine in Austin. He started a company called OpCity, sold it to Realtor.com. He's like, he loves this, this business. Everyone that I talk to about this is like, this clearly needs to get done. But then mobilizing it and going out and putting it all together, that's the next next level. And someone's going to have to do it. So I think yeah. that's uh, it needs to get done. Yeah, Chris, you're you're the you're the guy to do it. You got me fired up. Uh -huh. I, I had a guy the other day. I was like, I'm gonna buy a bank. He was. Oh, I, I saw he that. Was, he was, and now I'm I'm gonna start this. I'll tell you, my my creative juices are flowing. I don't know what I'm gonna do, but um, I want to find something cool to work on. Yeah. So I'm with you. Uh this is one of my favorite episodes. Really? This I'm sure. How, does he ass. say this every time? No. No, I probably I, said it five or six times and I've done 200 and I don't know. How, uh, how good is it that we did this in person though? It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all about good. in person, right? It is. Yeah. I very much appreciate it. No, I mean, uh, I feel like great. we are much closer because it was, in we're person. in the fort. We've been staring at each other, having these intimate it's, conversations it, in the fort. It's kind of like why I think it, this is the antithesis. Anybody thinks I think I like the office cause I like controlling people. It couldn't be more opposite. I like the office because I truly believe that things like this can't happen mm -hmm. any other way. Mm -hmm. And you have to be there five days a week. Absolutely not. But to have a culture where the, where people are colliding with each other, mm -hmm. um, that's important. It is. Well, I think that's we are better friends yes. because today happened. hundred percent agree. Yeah. This I mean, over zoom would not have had the same deal. No, I, it, this, this would have ended 20 minutes ago. Longer. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> or earlier, maybe 30 minutes, but it, it would also have been transactional. Yep. You know what I mean? Like the real value in a meeting is typically the the five minutes before it starts and the five minutes after. Yeah. 
And because the, you know, and I, and I think that that's where the relationships are built. That's where the ideas are exchanged. And uh, yeah, you just you lose, lose a lot of that. We're going through that as a business right now where, yeah. you know, we got a lot of employees everywhere as a result of COVID. Um, and it's challenging for sure. Yeah. Cause I, I like to be in the office. I like to be with people. Um, but it's, it's a new, it's a new kind of environment out there. Yep. So well, I'm, I'm grateful for the invite. Um, I do want some, some Fort swag. So I don't know what you have get, on site. Get you. We're uh, downstairs. Okay. All right. I want to tour the office. Let's dude. go this do place it. This is amazing by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah. You should be, I mean, I, I can't, I want everyone to know this is my first ever podcast. Um, Tony at, at DoorDash used to say like, you know, podcast, I was like, he's like, you gotta be building your business. Yeah. But uh, Chris gave me the invite. I had to be out here. This guy's a legend. You're a legend, man. I'm such a big fan of what you, of you and what you're doing. Oh, you're the man. We've chatted, I think, probably four or five times yeah. over two years. Yep. And it's just remarkable how far you've come in two years. Well, I appreciate that. The episode two might be like what we talked about on our first call, which is like nothing about what I mean, you were heading in the direction, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that's like, slowly then quickly right and it, and like things kind of come together and i think it's just how do you excel in, in any early stage business doesn't matter what it is is how do you accelerate kind of the learning curve and right? how do you know what to accelerate on that's right but um, you only know that by getting shots on goal right yeah. and so i think you got to be in it um so anyways yeah thanks for having me this has been awesome i'm rooting for you man okay all right i'm a well, big fan root for sfr thank you yeah tell tell all your friends that you know you know someone who uh can help them out with their their uh, SFR needs. There's a lot of SFR listeners. I will do that. And then one day we're going to start a business together. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm anxiously awaiting the trade school business. My, my wife. I was going to call it Craftsman. Oh, I like that. Um, but there's a Craftsman like hardware brand. But yeah. I, I got to figure out how to like play off of that. So I had an idea. So that's interesting. So my idea. Um, so one of my good family friends ran uh he was led like dev group for the seals team six hmm. uh he was like 25 year seal veteran uh master chief of uh team six and so my idea on the go like the kind of go to market strategy how you launch this thing you start with ex-military people are coming out of the military um need to learn new skills kind of re-enter um and i was thinking about maybe like team six i love it you like that yeah you like that and then I so but then we go it. out i'm just so writing go, it down i'm not gonna take no, it no we'll I'm do just this putting it right I'll, here. I'll, I'll just be an investor maybe okay but we'll um what we'll do is we'll go out and we'll partner with the military to get our first batch of you know technicians or hv like whatever it is that we decide is like the first use case for the trade and then it's like ex-military hyper you know focused uh diligent all those things that really kind of represent kind of the, the first step um yeah that that was my thought Something, something along the lines, because you, you start with the military and then you branch out, you like know yeah. your user deeply. Yeah. And so we're partnering, we're getting like an ex, ex-military kind of profile that wants to learn a skill to kind of go out. And then you attack the, the high school uh, on, the, on the kind of back half once you built, built the, the kind of the model. Like that? I love Team that. six, because you know, you got to get this where it's like, so for, for you got to get this. So where when they go out, they're, they have they have some like alumni network. They're like they're Sixers or something like that. You yeah, know, yeah. they're like they're part of the group, and you can brand that. Like everyone loves Team Six. You know, how That's does sexy. how does you, gotta, you have to have something sexy that you can sell if you're going to change the narrative? Okay, the the real question and the only question that really matters that the last question of the day is yep. how does Cheesecake Factory make its way into this business model? I mean, the Team Six group.
<laughs> they are. Or like that, that could be an angle, right? I, I, I guarantee you Cheesecake Factory's having challenges with people servicing their kitchens For sure. or servicing their infrastructure, That's, right? Dude. And so who's going to underwrite the, the education piece? Hey, look, you could partner. Your go-to-market could be around, hey, I'm going to partner with Cheesecake Factory and their endless menu to basically underwrite the education piece for these new people. They're going to get they're going to get some credit. I think they're going to get some supply. Uh could be a win-win there if you partner with the right kind of group on the merchant side. I ha- that's why like I I haven't figured this all out yet. Yeah. Um I I just don't have enough time to think about it. Yeah. You got to go down the rabbit hole, right? Oh, yeah. But um I I thought a little bit about like could you get like some some companies or some industries that need people like diesel uh provide diesel machinery like machinery providers right they need more talent yeah um so who's going to go out and train these people they're probably not equipped to go do this but they would finance this thing yeah the elevator groups right i mean they'll they'll finance this thing if they could get their hands on some supply yeah no that's i think that is the biggest thing is you go to the like huge employers and go what do you need who do you need how do you need them and then you're connecting you're the marketplace provider right, right? you're like connecting these two disparate groups that need yep. uh solutions yeah it's time. All right, dude. All right. This was awesome. This was so good. I got to go drive back to Austin, though. I know. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.